Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television, currently focused on HBO's Watchmen. This week, we're diving deep into Season 1, Episode 3, She Was Killed by Space Junk, written by Damon Lindelof and Lila Bayak and directed by Stephen Williams. Joining me to break it all down is the great Antonio in the Sky, my weekly Watchmen co-host, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, will you be signing autographs? after this podcast i can't i've got a brick in my hand got a brick in your hand well just throw it up and we'll see where it lands at the end of this podcast oh is that how it works we can find out at the end i believe that is how the uh that that's how the gag works okay got it the brick joke we're gonna do it that's the brick joke we're gonna do brick jokes we're gonna do all sorts of jokes and hopefully some smart talks and smart takes here as we are going through week three of watchmen the most watchmeny watchmen episode yet in some ways or at the very least it is the one that features the most overt ties to the graphic novel of any episode yet as this is the one where the artists formerly known as Silk Spectre and Ozymandias are officially back in play, even if the latter of those two has been in play, just not officially named. Antonio, we are here, week three of Watchmen. What did you think? I was very pleased with a lot of this episode. I'm still thinking about the reveal of Adrian Veidt, and I think <laughs> I suspect I will be thinking about that for a long time throughout yes. the course of my life. Very, very thrilling moment, uh, and really great centerpiece for Jean Smart in this episode, just putting her front and center of the action, putting her front and center of the story, giving her a lot to chew on and a lot of fun right from the jump, shooting a superhero, or, or should I say a masked vigilante. Clearly, this is not somebody who feels very good about the masked vigilantes that are out there now. Gene Smart's performance is fantastic throughout, incredibly memorable for sure, and a great introduction to this character. And still, Josh Watchman proving to be one of the craziest shows on TV with everything, as I'm saying, that was going on with Adrian Veidt with the Lord of the Manor and Mrs. Crookshanks. So I was very pleased overall. Yeah, Antonio texted me before we got onto the podcast. And of course, many of you hopefully know that Antonio and I, we podcast about Mr. Robot over at Post Show Recaps. And I think you said, with apologies to Mr. Robot, the Lord of the Manor stuff is my favorite thing on tv right now uh, i did hard, say that and i, hard, I stand hard by agree it. hard agree yeah <laughs> it's just so it's good just phenomenal stuff <laughs> it's really really great i have no real idea exactly what's going on no. there. And each week it just gets crazier it's better and better every single time if you go to thr.com slash watchman right now there's more coverage from this episode including some interview content with damon lindelof with jeremy irons and gene smart about the arrival of Lori blake into the hbo watchman universe and the reveal of who it is that Jeremy Irons is playing, even if we've known all along, or at least have strongly suspected that the Lord of the Manor and Adrian Veidt are the same person. It's nice to just have the air cleared, and I feel like, um, I wonder how this lands with people who don't have the comic book history to draw upon, people who are just tuning into HBO's Watchmen as their first exposure to this story. I think that the way that they're talking about Adrian Veidt elsewhere in the episode would would um, would help make that reveal land with with some authority. But for for you and I, Antonio, I think, and people like us who were suspecting at the very least that this character was the exact same character as Adrian Veidt from the comic book. Did it feel like it was a major reveal for you or was it more just like a delightful confirmation? 
It was both, really. I mean, can it be both? Like, is there a way for them to have both stuck the landing on it being a reveal and also just feeling like a delightful confirmation? Because that's how I felt. Like, I felt like it's not a secret when they begin the scene on a bust of Alexander the Great and he's wearing the Ozymandias mask. Right. That it's that it's Adrian Veidt, that it's Ozymandias. And yet it is still a great moment when the camera centers Jeremy Irons there and he just says, Adrian Veidt. Like, how can you not say that that's a, both a great reveal and just something that you feel great to have confirmed? I think, like, I still think that there could be some argument for there being some kind of chicanery going on here. I really don't think that's the case. I think this puts it mostly to bed. But there's just, it's just odd. When is this happening? Where is it happening? Why is it happening? All of those questions being in play do make you wonder, like, exactly what am I watching, even though I'm sure now that the Lord of the Manor is Adrian Veidt in this way. Right. It's Argentina, right? Isn't that what PD's friend on the Argentina desk said, that uh, Adrian Veidt isn't dead? He got plastic surgery. He's <laughs> hiding somewhere in Argentina. That's the rumor. Don't cry for me, uh, Ozymandias. The truth is, <laughs> I never left you. I've been yeah. at the manor the whole time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's possible. I guess it's possible he's in Argentina. It's possible that this isn't occurring over a period of years, even though it seems like it is, even though it seems like we're now on the third year of these scenes. So wherever he is, it seems like he's been there a while and he's trying to get out. Uh, and his his attempts to get out really are, are quite macabre. Really, it's just <laughs> tough to watch. Yeah, poor Mr. Phillips, whichever one this is, this is Montrose or some other new Mr. Phillips. It's a pretty (laughs) rough break for the guy. Speaking of break, yeah, it's it's frozen right to the core and broken off. This is brutal. Yeah, Uh, and suppose I mean I. I would think that he was shot into space, but then by what and why with a rope around his body? I mean, and then you, you just you see the models uh, in the, the workroom there. And there's like he's modeling what looks like a spacesuit, but it's very rustic. And he's modeling what looks like some kind of giant catapult. Like, I really don't know what the hell is going on. You can't catapult someone into space, can you? I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. But Ozymandias also helped create a gigantic telepathic squid that annihilated millions of people. So don't put it past him to make a miniature catapult that can launch people into outer orbit. Well, and we know from PDpedia, the supplemental materials that HBO is providing with each episode, we know that his, uh, the, the layer that he had in Antarctica, the name of that is, is escaping Karnak. me, but Karnak, Karnak the Magnificent, we know that that layer is gone. It's empty. So I would think, okay, maybe this is a Karnak type situation, right? Where he's in this lush seeming estate, but really just outside of the bubble is Antarctica. But it does not, I, I mean, it really seems like he's trying to shoot somebody into space. He looks like he's building some. <laughs> kind of spacesuit so i really don't know what he's I mean, doing it would make sense if he is sending somebody out into like the cold abyss of antarctica too uh, yes the, the the frozen uh, state of poor mr phillips when he's coming back but we're also burying the lead that there's a game warden apparently wherever he is <laughs> wearing a mask and sitting on a horse and shooting him as he attempts to claim a kill that will give him a thicker hide for a suit uh so he is in prison it seems like it, at, and that's what it seems like from the context of the notes that are being sent back and forth He's in some kind of captivity somewhere. I, it's just, it's, it's bonkers. It's just bonkers stuff. And I, I don't know how it will tie back into the main story of, of Watchmen in Tulsa, 
But I think you're right. I think we started to get a little bit of a hint of that this week. And I think that's uh, certainly something we should talk about as we get to that point of the episode. Well, I think since we're here, we may as well just stick with the Lord of the Manor since it's like its own show anyway. So So let's just get into the Lord of the Manor stuff and then we'll talk through everything else from the episode. But there's there's a lot of great Easter eggs within the Lord of the Manor sequence, even even before it's officially revealed that he's Adrian Fight. Like he has this miniature terrarium, right? That looks like it, it could have been Karnak, which is, again, if you haven't read the comic books, we talk about the comic books here clearly on the podcast. He has this base in the middle of Antarctica called Karnak. That's this lush, tropical, super civilized, wonderful place that he goes and retreats to. And he has this little terrarium here in the Lord of the Manor sequence that you can see as the camera is crawling across the room that was very evocative of that. You see uh, some of his his music choices, Antonio, which seem maybe a little whimsical and, and arbitrary and kind of fueling that, you know, funky, weird vibe that's going on in the Lord of the Manor scenes in the Adrian Veidt storyline. But it's not chosen for no reason. Like, as per the comics, Adrian Veidt is into reggae. He loves dub music. This is something he reveals during an interview in one of the ancillary materials provided by the graphic novel. It's just like the fun little attention to detail things like that that make this show such a delight for people who who know the material, uh, the original text, the way that clearly uh, Damon Lindelof and, and his team of writers have paid such fidelity to. Definitely. And it's it's not just the, the little music choices or those notes that are great treats. Uh, it's just seeing like it, it's the idea that whatever he's up to, it's so crazy that in that scene where you're talking about the camera panning around the room, he's tanning some kind of hide. And I was for a moment wondering, are, are those the skin of the clones <laughs> that he was burning? Like, is that the skin of the clones he was burning in the play in the earlier episode? And I was, I, I'm not convinced that it wasn't. It looked looks like there's some kind of animal uh, being tanned or skinned on on the outside there. So I think it's an animal hide. And clearly he wants to get a thicker animal hide later. Uh, but it, it, the possibility that I would even wonder that tells me that just about anything can happen wherever the heck he is. So it's a wild world for sure. From terrariums to music choices to whatever he's doing, tanning and making a suit. Uh, and he, he's just, he's it, it looks like he's like old forge work. Like he's cutting the top off of the glass with just heat like this is crazy stuff and i'm 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 given to wonder like knowing what we know about ozymandias so his parents immigrate he they die when he's about 18 years old right and rather than inherit their their money he rejects it and says i'm going to build myself up from the ground up and then he does that and that's proof of his success I am wondering, like, did he put himself in this situation? Is this the sort of thing that a really bored old Osmandius would do? Is give himself an unsolvable puzzle, a Gordian knot, if you will, uh, that he had to try to find his way out of, uh, considering he's done everything else he possibly could? What would an aging Osmandius do if he's bored and he feels like the only thing he can't do is achieve what Dr. Manhattan has, immortality and true godlike status? How would he keep himself occupied? This does seem like the kind of task he would set himself with and so that's the thing that i'm wondering about is is he in a position of his own choosing and is he like trying to puzzle his way out of the situation so that's sort of what i'm looking around for when i see these things on the side and little ideas that he's having to try to build things is did he put himself in this position and is this him trying to work his way out yeah how adrian got his groove back right 
<laughs> he listened to Desmond Decker, Israelites, obviously. Yeah, which has earwormed severely into my brain right now, and I'm not complaining about it. Yeah, it you is... could go far, far, far worse. Yeah. Uh, that is a, a great thing to have earwormed into your brain. And so, great choice by Adrian Veidt. I want that record player. It's Everything about it is, is, is cool as hell, and it's hilarious because you're right. It does tie directly into the comic source material. Uh, he was just like the proto-hipster. Like, I'm, you know, you probably haven't heard of this, but uh, you, you'll like it, I'm sure, if you listen to it. It's yeah, really that's funny. what he tells the interviewer when he's talking about dub music. It's very, very funny. Um, yeah. I, I love whatever it is he's doing with this Mr. Phillips, you know, suiting him up in armor and saying, this will be the one. I feel it in my bones. And then he sends him out into whatever mission that very clearly does not work. We push in with the camera. <laughs> the camera pushes in on poor Mr. Phillips's face. And there's like the, the drum roll in the background. And then we see he's just frozen dead. And Vite is just like smashing his boot into his body he kicks his arm off uh, and is just repeatedly like cursing and the cursing know, is so funny it's it's truly it's like razzle frazzle brazzle you know yes <laughs> it's just like gobbledygook uh but it's also horrifying he's like abusing a corpse yes Yes. Well, if, if you haven't read it yet, I strongly encourage over at THR.com slash Watchmen. I have an interview up with Tom Meisen, who plays Mr. Phillips, the various Phillipses. And he, he goes into great detail about how costuming was very helpful for him working on this show because it helped him track what kind of a Phillips was he? Was he a Phillips who is like deeply familiar with the master, works closely with his master? Is he a Phillips that uh, works in the kitchen and barely gets to see his master? Maybe he's laying eyes upon Adrian Veidt for the first time in a scene that he shows up in and so we see we we see the way that he shows up here talking to talking to to Vite and like not even like flinching like not even batting an eye when Adrian Vite is just nuking this poor guy this poor corpse on the ground who is uh, him and it's him and it's, yeah. it says so much about the, <laughs> the the state of being for for these uh these people that that Vite is surrounded by he also talks about in in the interview about how he and Jeremy Irons and Sarah Vickers, who plays all the Crookshankses, had before anything even started, uh, they sat around at a table and and conversed about what the storyline was going to be because all of these scenes, the Lord of the Manor scenes, shot in Wales, produced before the main production of Watchmen began in Atlanta, written and produced uh, before that, and they they had a conversation about. What is life? What is the meaning of life? Are these people, are, are whatever Phillips and Crookshanks are, are they are they really alive? And if they are, what can what can Adrian Veidt do to them and get away with and feel morally clean? If they are not alive, what can he do to them and walk away feeling morally clean? And so I think that the the ethics of the way that Adrian Veidt treats these clones or whatever they are is going to be very front and center in this storyline. And if that's going to take a turn, it sure as shooting hasn't turned yet. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. And I don't know what could it doesn't it's not clear that these at first when maybe we thought in episode one that they were robots of some sort and he was let down by the fact that that there was a confusion between a horseshoe and a knife uh and that they would not be able to think on or learn what he wanted them to learn i thought maybe these are robots and he's failed to develop them like maybe this is a a reminder of his failure 
But now it doesn't seem like that. Now it just seems like they're they're infinite. They're clones. I they're, it's not clear if he's even making them. How long it like did they emerge? Like we I, we don't know exactly like where they're coming from. But it doesn't seem as much to me now. Like Vite has agency over them. He's just using them. And I guess he feels bad about them to a point, but clearly not bad enough about them to not use them as crash test dummies and send them into space and freeze them. So they must be totally expendable. And I don't think he's attached to them in any way. Or maybe we're just going to need a thicker skin if we're dealing with this, because it, it seems to be that uh, uh, Phillips is getting killed uh, on the reg here in Watchmen. At least one per episode almost now we're into this. Uh, maybe not the first episode, but now we are. But we're we're also just what's going on with Vite overall. Like I said, he's in a position where I'm, I watch him and I see him maybe be disappointed. And I wonder, is he disappointed in his creation? He seems a little bit sad when he puts on the full Lazamandius costume and he looks at himself in the mirror. It, it comes off as sad to me. Did it come off that way to you as well? Yes. Yeah. And I think that that was intentional in, in the interview that I do with, with Damon Lindelof talking about um, how it doesn't, it doesn't fit the same way, right? Like he's, he's an older man. This is an older Ozymandias than the, than the one from the comics or 30 some odd years on from the man who dropped a squid in the middle of New York and changed the course of humanity forever. So for it to feel like he is a little bit off his game, I think is by design. Lindelof talked talks about how it was very interesting to him as somebody who loves the character of Adrian Veidt. Without hesitation, Lindelof told me that Veidt was his favorite character from the comic uh, by far and away, not even a question and always was. That what he was really interested in with getting a chance to tell a story about this character was to take him out of his out of his element almost you know Watchmen the graphic novel is a story about how at least in Ozymandias's mind everything is so neatly in his control he's got the situation handled to the point that when Rorschach and Night Owl both of whom are name checked even if Night Owl isn't outright name checked in this episode when they arrive at Karnak to confront Ozymandias at the end of the graphic novel of like what are you doing what are you planning and Ozymandias mustache twirls his way through a monologue he tells them at the end like the only reason I'm revealing this monologue to you is because you've no chance of stopping me it's already happened it happened more than a half hour ago 35 minutes ago Um, you know that's how in control he is throughout the entire graphic novel and there's one issue left and it's only in his final scene that he expresses any lingering element of doubt and it's very private and only to Dr. Man Manhattan. So for the sake of the show, we are seeing an Ozymandias who in many ways is in control of his faculties still. He shoots a buffalo in the eye. Uh, with like razor precision with a bow and arrow. The things that he is doing, rather impressive. The Whether or not yeah. that suit worked, it's a very impressive feat. It's of, a martial feat of Comanche horsemanship. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, a <laughs> hell of an engineering job. That however many years on, this is still an Ozymandias who does have it, but he's clearly in a situation where whether it's by his own design, as you speculate, which I think is an interesting speculation, uh, certainly based on the letter from the game warden when he says the game Game Warden writes to him and says, I beg your pardon, sir, but when you first arrived here, we agreed upon the terms of your captivity. Is it that Ozymandias is captured? Is it that he's captured himself? We obviously have no idea yet, but 
if it's something that is by his own design, it sure looks like he doesn't want to be part of the design anymore. And yes. so this gives us a very different version of the comic book character, somebody who, who's still fairly consistent with a lot of the things that we know about him. He's very clever, very smart, seems to have a level of disregard or apathy towards living creatures only insofar as they cater to his his whims and his needs. But somebody who is not the master of the situation, he may be the lord of the manor, uh, but that's just a title. And I think that that's fascinating. I think that it's giving us some very bizarre stuff and very delightful stuff to, to behold. That was in the letter the game warden writes. He says, your humble servant, the game warden, which I mean, that is, those those words could mean a lot of things, but they could literally mean he's working for Adrian right. Veidt in some way. Adrian Veidt does not address uh, the game warden in the same way. Your humble servant, Adrian Veidt. He says, all best wishes and encouragement. Adrian, Adrian Veidt. Yes, yeah. so great. He's pleased and, he enjoyed uh, the tomatoes as pleased well. Pleased he enjoyed the tomatoes. Uh, it, it's a, it's it's an interesting relationship. There's a Jolly Roger flag. It, it does seem like some sort of comic book goings on. And the game warden is wearing an eye mask, like we see other places in the episode. There is that level of uh, what what is what is uh, what does Adrian Veidt say? He says, "I'm not a Republic serial villain. Right, which I'm not is a what dastardly forest yeah. brigand. Yeah, yeah." And he says, "I'm not I'm not a Republic serial." villain villain in the comic book as well referencing the republic serials and uh just a, a great call back to something he once said to dan dreberg and uh and walter kovacs before he informed them the full scope of his plan so yeah it's it's hard to say it's hard to say exactly what's going on with him but i think just the clarification the confirmation that this is indeed adrian Veidt that we are watching here and it's a different shade of adrian Veidt than the man that you know from the comic book is is really fun and if you're not coming to this from the comic book, what what is a big deal to clarify what it is you're watching here is that this is a man who is chiefly responsible for the state of the world as it is known in the context of the Watchmen TV series. The squid rain, all thanks to this guy, you assume, at least it, it's birthed from the initial plan that he had. So this is a very important figure in the world of Watchmen and the world of Watchmen believes him to be dead. And I think that the the narrative is a little split on on Adrian Veidt. Uh, it would seem like there's probably a lot of people who still hold him in high esteem, that he was a, uh, you know, a prolific businessman and popular figure in in the in the context of the graphic novel in the 1980s. But there are people who are not fans of Ozymandias, as Lori Blake herself, played by Gene Smart, very sharply points out. So it's a big deal that this is who this guy is. Uh, right. And and it leaves us, I don't know, it leaves me very, very hungry for A, tomatoes, and B, more Adrian Veidt. Well, and there's a possibility. We don't really know everything that happened, obviously, in the time period from the squid incident in the 80s until now. But we know that it is not known, I don't think at least widely, uh, that Adrian Veidt was responsible for that squid incident. He didn't take credit for it publicly. In fact, it was important that he not take credit for it because humanity had to feel they were under threat from an outside force in order to band together and stop being afraid of each other. And so that's, that's, that was his whole plan. And yet there are some people... In, within the context of the the show we're watching, who believe that he was responsible? Circling the truth, yeah. Yes, 
Yeah, who are but, but they're, they're not the good people in the show, right? It's the Seventh Cavalry. It's the people uh, who have found a way to see their own images in Rorschach's face and come up with their own uh, agenda that they read into Rorschach's existence. And Rorschach himself had discovered that that Adrian Veidt was responsible, like we've talked about. And so these people are the ones who believe that he was responsible. So there's a lot of talk about him out there in the world. I mean, like you said, even when Gene Smart and Agent Petey are flying into Tulsa and they see the Millennium Clock, which is, we don't know what the Millennium Clock is. It's been visible in a couple of shots so far, but we haven't really got an idea of why it exists. Right. But we find out it was built by the lady who built, or who bought Adrian Veidt's company. And she quoted Adrian Veidt, or she quoted Ozymandias, the poem, when she dedicated the clock. So there, he's a, a figure that is present in the minds of everybody, including people randomly building towers in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So this is not a guy who would have been obscure in the world his disappearance makes the front page of the paper in Tulsa as we see in the first episode his presence therefore is a living being at least in some way we don't know exactly what timeline on this show is significant like I said I'm fascinated to see how it will tie back into Tulsa if at all uh, if at all we, it may not I mean it may be a separate story that's being told but I have a feeling it will it would there will there will be some way that it ties back into the it's gonna tie for sure no no yeah. chance that it doesn't in it, whether it's just metaphorically or thematic but I think that more so even than, uh, you know, the Watchmen graphic novel tells a comic book story within the context of the comic book. And that's much more metaphorical. That's much more thematic. Uh, this is dealing with a very important character from the mythos. So hard to imagine that it doesn't come colliding into the main narrative at some point. And the folks involved in that storyline have said as much just a matter of how that collision occurs. That's the TBD. Unless you've got anything else on the Lord of the Manor, we should start talking about Laurie Blake. No, I think it ties directly back in because Lori Blake is another character, as you observed at the beginning of this discussion here, that is a major presence from the graphic novel, a major character in the graphic novel, who, unlike Sister Knight or unlike uh, Looking Glass, is somebody that, that was a vigilante or was a masked, masked hero within the context of the graphic novel. And we're now seeing what she's like in our current timeline, and it's vastly different. Uh, so she, of course, is aware of Adrian Veidt, but she also has opinions on superheroes as a whole. It doesn't seem like it's going well uh, for the masked vigilantes uh, in Lori's world. Not at all. Not at all. Well, she seems like she's part of this anti-vigilante task force on the FBI. But yeah, she used to be the Silk Spectre, which was a legacy hero. Uh, her mother was the, the original Silk Spectre in the world of Watchmen. Lori herself was uh, was an active crime fighter for quite a while, uh, as made mention in the show, in this episode. She used to date Dr. Manhattan. We now know a whole lot about Dr. Manhattan. Manhattan just from the context of the show and his uh, his memory keeps getting evoked here. Talk about things that are, are inevitable in terms of its collision to the show. More and more, I'm convinced that Dr. Manhattan is going to have huge importance to the end game of Watchmen season one here. But Laurie was was dating him once upon a time in the comic book. That relationship comes to an end. Uh, she starts to embark on a new romance with Night Owl, Dan Dreberg, who is a fellow masked vigilante, uh, and the two of them end the graphic novel in not not quite in witness protection but basically with new identities new looks uh, and it seems like they are going to go off and continue their adventures and what we what we get from from the pdpedia which is the hbo.com ancillary material on watchmen that antonio referenced earlier and now we know who pd is which is which is nice uh based on I, this hopefully we'll meet pedia soon and hopefully we will in some of the the material that's been been listed there it would seem as though night 
White Owl and Lori Blake, who who was not Lori Blake in the comic, but her father is Edward Blake, the comedian who is a very central figure to the comic book. And she makes that discovery over the course of that story that Lori took on her father's last name, took on her father's moniker, called herself the Comedienne. And the Comedienne and Night Owl were active for 10 years post Watchmen, post the comic book. The ancillary material makes mention of their apprehension at some point in the mid 90s. Night Owl, based on the information we get in this episode, appears to be still imprisoned to some capacity, whereas Lori is obviously free, but maybe not so happy. She's actively seeking out vigilantes, taking them down. She shoots Mr. Shadow uh, Antonio and shoots him without any regard for the possibility that maybe he's not wearing body armor. And it seems like she's got a pretty dark, bleak outlook on on vigilanteism. She's going to say to Angela at one point, what's the difference between a masked vigilante and a masked cop? And Angela says, I don't know. And Lori says, me neither. Uh, You know, she really seems to have a fairly nihilistic view of the world, which is kind of honoring the tradition of her father, who Antonio was not a great guy. Not a great guy. I would say not just nihilistic, almost aggressively nihilistic. That joke that you talk about that she tells to Angela, she tells fully knowing that Angela is Sister Knight. I mean, she saw her profile in the FBI room when there was the case briefing before she came to Tulsa, and it says right on Angela's profile, a.k.a. Sister Knight. She knows she's a cop. She knows she's a masked vigilante, a.k.a. a cop with a mask on. So she is being aggressive to her in that moment uh, in saying that. She is being hostile to her in that moment. And that uh, that kind of goes back and forth throughout the course of this episode. Her hostility to Angela Abar, having never met Angela before, seemingly only because Angela is wearing a mask as a police officer. It's Laurie is hostile to Senator Keene about this, too, because, of course, what happens is she she starts the, the episode starts. She starts telling her joke, uh, which we can get into. But she talks to Senator Keene. He comes in and he says, like, I heard you caught Mr. Shadow. Thanks for keeping our streets safe and, and all that. And, and he's got an agenda. He wants her to come to Tulsa. He basically says, I'm not sure it's the 7th Cavalry. Uh, it could be a vigilante that's doing this. And he's he's got a, his political life is on the line, basically, because he's the one who it sounds like created DOPA, uh, the the Defense of Police Act or whatever it was that caused the allowed the police to wear masks. Right. He said crime is down 80%. All these other cities want to cover it, but someone's trying to start a war and he's worried uh, as, as Lori fills in that he won't get to be president if they do because it'll undermine his political legacy. This seems important to me. This seems like maybe this is a larger story that we're going to explore in this episode or in the, in the series that maybe Judd was killed in some ways to undermine the police force to start some sort of incident which will prevent Senator Keene from becoming president. Like maybe there is some political story here. Lori doesn't seem interested in all of that. But Senator Keene says, like, I can get your owl out of the cage. And that seems to be really a reference to Dan Dreberg being in jail as much as it is a reference to the fact that she has a pet owl in her apartment. So she's not in a happy place. Who? 
Who? Yeah, the owl. Uh, yeah. The, the, the owl guy. The, the guy that's in the cage. Who is on first. Uh, no, who's in the cage? Who is in the cage. Yeah, uh, yeah no, you're absolutely right. And uh, it, it was really great to see that. It was really great to see all the owl imagery. Clearly, she is still carrying a torch for Dan, who appears to be behind bars in some capacity. We've already discussed in the podcast that a lot of Dan Dreberg, the night owl's technology, is apparent on the show. The goggles that we once again see Angela Avar rocking in this episode. The goggles they do something so that's nice um but why he's imprisoned and she is not that's harder for me to to put together maybe it's just a a matter of a stance or a matter of if he is in jail laurie will cooperate maybe to keep him safe who knows i think that that's a, a larger story to tell for sure is it possible that she, quote unquote, sold out and was willing to join up as an official FBI agent and he wasn't willing to join as an FBI agent to crack down on vigilantes? She has a history why... with, you know, with working with the government when, when right. she was with. So Dr. does her Man- father. Right. When she was with Dr. Manhattan, the two of them were working with the government. And as you say, Antonio, the comedian was employed by the government. He was one of the only vigilantes that was still around to, uh, allowed to operate. So it may have been like a legacy thing uh, that she was able to, to get back into or something that maybe she would have been more comfortable with than Dan. I loved that pop art behind her in her yeah, apartment. Cool. Her apartment is filled with with great little callbacks as well, but that pop art that features herself, it features Ozymandias, it features Night Owl, and it features Dr. Manhattan. And if you go back and if you look at it, you'll notice, certainly I think it's pretty obvious that the Silk Spectre illustration looks like it's Gene Smart. The Ozymandias illustration absolutely looks like Jeremy Irons. It's a little blurrier, so it's a little harder to make out. Night Owl wears a mask so it's a little hard to see if he looks like anybody i was trying to look at the dr manhattan pop art image and 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 trying to see like does that look like a familiar actor because there's no casting that has been announced for dr manhattan on the show uh and i don't know if you were studying that at all yeah all i saw was uh, david cross as tobias funke (laughs) that would be Awful. That would be <laughs> tough. That would be difficult. I'm hoping. I, I know that Damon Lindelof says he doesn't, with the exception of Regina King, does not tend to work with the same actors across multiple projects. But my fingers are crossed for Justin Thoreau as oh Doctor Manhattan. I know uh, you just want to see. I know. Yes. I know why. Yes. Yes. Why. We don't need to. We don't his need unique to biometrics. His unique biometrics, I think, would make him uh, quite the <laughs> well Dr. suited for yes. Doctor Man. Well suited. Yes. Speaking of carrying a torch for uh, the night owl, she's carrying a torch for Dr. Manhattan, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. we should talk about that. The The episode is it's got this framing device of the joke that she is telling in like the, the Dr. Manhattan phone booth. Do we have a, an official name for this contraption that she is standing in? No, I noticed that it was from the True Company, which we found out Lady True is the one who bought uh, Adrian Veidt's company and who built this Millennium Clock. Right. So the name is is running consistently throughout here. I, I don't have a Mission to Mars kind of phone. I don't know exactly what that is, but it, it seems to be a, a, a service where theoretically you could send a message to Mars and send a message to Dr. Manhattan and he's listening. Uh, I guess Dr. Manhattan wouldn't need a phone being Dr. Manhattan. He would just kind of know what was going on but maybe this provides people with the comfort of knowing that they can put a call to someone or somewhere and it would connect directly to mars and Lori seems to get some kind of uh, respite from it she's a platinum user it sounds like of the service so 
this is something she she gets something out of. Uh, she's telling a joke. She's talking about a male bricklayer who's very precise, and every brick has its place. And he's got a daughter, and all a man has is his legacy. So he's going to teach his daughter how to be a bricklayer, and he's going to build this beautiful barbecue. And then he gets all these plans together. And then there's one brick left over when they're done. Uh, and his daughter doesn't know what to do with the brick, so she picks it up and throws it as high as she can. Oh, wait, that's the messed up joke. So that's the beginning of this joke is a brick joke. Were you familiar with the brick joke motif before we got into this uh, episode, or is it something that had been kind of no. swimming around? It's a trope, right? No, not not at all. It was not on my radar at all, and then you mentioned it to me, uh, and I, I wonder if this will illuminate people as well, so please get into it. Yeah, it's just a it's a thing. Like I had I had kind of heard this before and not understood it. I know, like uh, the about, shaggy dog story. I feel like you know it's this, a lot like that. It's it's in the same vein. I don't think it's quite the same. Uh, this is literally like you throw a brick up at the start of your joke, and then you feel like you screwed it up, and you ignore the brick, and you tell a second separate joke, and then the joke ends with the brick landing and causing some kind of impact. Correct. Yeah, this is a this is a thing that that is out there, and it is it's just something that is it's like a, a thing that like you said like the Shaggy Dog story, where it is it, it's something that's been done in jokes, uh, and the fact that she does it and pulls it off so well uh, is really cool. Like it's a very fun device, like you said, that frames the episode, but it is also like this this thing where I mean, how do you fool? How do you tell a joke to Doctor Manhattan? Honestly, like she talks about how he doesn't have a sense of humor, but what would Doctor Manhattan laugh at? What joke would he not? see coming how could you use comic timing to make dr manhattan laugh and the answer is you really couldn't so maybe you have to surprise him in some way and the joke itself is about surprising a supreme omniscient being and maybe he wouldn't like that punchline because it ends with god uh, getting his brains blown out through his nose by <laughs> right. a falling brick uh, and maybe dr manhattan wouldn't like that but it is not lost on me that the device itself is the sort of thing that you might have to use uh, in order to t tell a joke to dr manhattan but it seems like this is something she does commonly she says she she calls and tells him jokes a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think that she still uh, feels very connected to him and the fact that we know at the very least, you know, we've questioned whether or not Dr. Manhattan is actually in the situation that people publicly believe him to be. But if Lori, uh, at the very least, Lori doesn't know any differently than what the public story seems to be. She says, you've been on another planet for 30 years. These people think you still give a shit about us, but you've been living on another planet for 30 years, she tells him. And we're not really worth giving a shit about anyway, are we? That was a big crux of the Dr. Manhattan story is how over time, you know, with his kind of omniscient abilities and he sees uh, he sees time and space very differently than the normal human being, which is part of his aspect of the joke. The three stories she tells of the three men, obviously, at least to us, maybe not obviously to everybody, are about Night Owl or about Ozymandias and about Dr. Manhattan specifically. And the Dr. Manhattan story ends in terms of him getting banished and sentenced to hell with him seeing it coming because he's all already there and that's the way that he views time and that's the way he talks about time and space and that only gets worse over the course of the graphic novel that he is starting to lose sight of individual humanity and it's only when he sees like a, a an emotional moment from Lori when she puts together who her father is in the comic book that he starts to once again realize the potential in humanity but that's the last time it seems like Lori ever saw Dr. Manhattan and at the point that we're at in the story it doesn't seem like Laurie has seen Dan, the night owl, in a very long time either. She seems very, very lonely. And the only you know, potential person, the only potential confidant she, she has to contact is this frickin' phone booth for Dr. Manhattan. What's more, 
and I don't think that this should be glossed over. Lori is one of very few people on the planet that knows for sure the truth about why the state of the world is the state of the world right. in, the, in the universe of Watchmen. She is there as part of the, the the resolution of the graphic novel and coming to realize what happened. She's there firsthand. She's in the streets of New York City in the aftermath of the squid arriving. She sees the dead bodies on the streets. They were all just trying to get tandoori chicken, and instead they were all slaughtered. And she she goes to Karnak with Dr. Manhattan, and she's part of that confrontation with Ozymandias. It's why she says to Petey, I too am not a fan. But she knows that keeping the secret is the only way to preserve whatever peace has been forged by Adrian Veidt's terrible plan. And she's had to live with this. I think probably you can imagine that at the very least when she was with Night Owl, she had somebody to share that burden with. Now she's got nobody to share that burden with. I think it makes a lot of sense why she would have a pretty pessimistic view of the state of the world as a result of that. No doubt. No doubt. And it's very, I think, a very smart device, very smartly written how the joke as a structure throughout shows her opinions about the three people that she's talking about. And in the Adrian Veidt section, she does talk about drop the giant squid, alien squid on New York. Everyone was so afraid of it. They stopped being afraid of each other. And she basically says you can't make a tomlet without breaking Greg. I had that uh, in my so... notes as well. <laughs> same, same page. Yeah, she can't make an omelet without breaking eggs uh, is what Adrian Veidt would say but and that seems to be what he's doing by the way he's breaking mr phillips's so he's trying to make some kind of omelet but this is something that she's carrying around with her and it definitely colors her opinion of a lot of things as you're saying so it, it certainly would be coloring her opinion just of superheroes in general uh, it, it, overall it just seems like she's she's stuck in the past in a lot of ways you talked about the owl imagery we also pretty much have to talk about the briefcase uh, that she's carrying with her that she has at her apartment where she's playing Devo um, that has the code 667 on it and then we don't know what's in the briefcase until late in the episode we find out what's in the briefcase take a look inside yeah, it's my doc in a box. Yes. Uh, this is, uh, this is, uh, is this what you expected to be in that briefcase? It's a jaw dropper for sure. There is a there is a lot of attention to detail when it comes to Lower Manhattan on Watchmen through three episodes yeah. so yes. far. Yeah, uh, that was a lot, and apparently not going to do the trick uh, on the night that this episode ends on, where she is going to go and pay. Petey a visit, which I thought was great because we we what we learned about Petey in this episode, who is a character that I really, really liked. I mean, coming into this episode, having read the ancillary material really helps give you even more sense of character for this guy. The Petypedia is really worth checking out if you're really into Watchmen. If you're into Watchmen enough that you're listening to this podcast, you should absolutely be checking out Petypedia. And some of the material that you're seeing there are like these internal FBI memos written by Petey. And they're written in such a way like that you can tell that he's probably not the most well-liked person in the office, that he's talking about things that nobody else really wants to talk about. Nobody else seems to really be paying him much mind. You get that sense from him in this episode as well. He had a PhD in history. Uh, he wrote his thesis about masked vigilantism, uh, specifically these riots in 1977 that Lori was a part of, that she was working to, to combat. Yeah, the police in, strike. Mm -hmm, right, exactly. Right. Back in the day. And he says, and I got yanked away from my 
my track to come, you know, work the projector for the FBI. And so he has sort of this like matter of fact attitude about him. He clearly he says, like, don't talk to me like I'm some sort of fan. But he does feel like he's a guy that has like some sense of nostalgia or wonder or at least deep interest in the world of masks and maybe isn't quite starstruck by Lori Blake, but feels some level of kinship or envy potentially towards her and him bringing the Lone Ranger mask, as she calls it. Like, don't wear that thing. You're FBI. You're not one of these people. You know, she really like takes him down for for trying to wear that on his way into Tulsa. And what you end up with when she's in bed with Petey by the end of the episode, you see, you, you know, you don't see them in the act. You see them afterwards and he's asleep in bed and he's got the Lone Ranger mask on. And in the comic book, uh, there's a, there's a sex scene between Lori and Dan Dreberg and there's a couple and the one that is uh, the two that are that are more helpful uh, in terms of them actually enjoying themselves both involve costumes. And I thought that that was a really interesting touch that even though to the world she seems to exhibit this real skepticism and loathing towards the act of mask, masked vigilantism and even uh, masked law enforcement in her private moments, she still has some sort of calling back to that world, whether it's through the dock in a box and calling Dr. Manhattan on the uh, the intergalactic phone booth or as simple a detail as Petey wearing the Lone Ranger mask while they're in bed together. Yeah, and they're staying at the Black Freighter Inn, right. uh, which is like terrifying if they had read that comic book. So it, it's there are these moments, you're right, that are Easter eggs or that are shout outs to the graphic novel, but they are so, also are instructive as you're talking about. It is instructive that Petey puts a page from Rorschach's journal in the presentation from the FBI there at the briefing before they go to Tulsa uh, because it says something about how he views these issues and what he's thinking about. Uh, we see Rorschach's journal, right? He's reading these things in his room like he's into it. He's all in and it's not necessarily on a fan level but it also kind of is uh, because of the mask moment like you're talking about. So there, it's really just clever stuff that's being done here in an instructive way. And like I said, just the way she tells the joke and what she says about the judgment of the three characters like for example the fact that Dan was so smart and he was able to invent all this this technology uh, but he didn't kill anyone and God frowns and says you're too soft that's her view of the joke like that's the way she's telling the joke uh, she tells the joke about everything that happened with Adrian Vite and everything that happened with Dr. Manhattan so this is it's instructive about what she thinks about people as well so are her direct interactions obviously I like the indirect stuff but the direct stuff is so delicious in this episode her interaction with looking glass is just phenomenal it's so it's so funny and it's so like eviscerating and for looking glass i think you've remarked as sort of the rorschach of this series in that he puts that mask on and you see yourself in it uh, i He's like, like that wiping idea. imaginary sweat off yes. of his masked face with the yellow yes. rag like dude if you're perspiring on the outside of that thing what's it like underneath there right but he is just completely eviscerated he keeps up a little bit but really she is in control in his interrogation room uh, she undermines him and says it's a racist detector so funny 
So funny. Uh, it determine. He says it determines and exposes negative cultural biases to which the suspect might not otherwise admit. And she says it's a racist detector. <laughs> and then you know later on when he says it's an oversimplification. Uh, can, you, can, I have, can I have the? Yeah, it's an oversimplification. Can I have the control back? And she's like, you mean the racist detector? Like he? She won't let it go. And he is not in control in that room. So it's interesting that he asked for the you know the remote control back. But he's really he's it's a role reversal for him in that room. Uh, she is asking him, for example, the same kind of questions that he was asking Sister Knight, asking Angela in the car. But she's asking about Judd here and says, you know, why was, was there a tox screen done? She wants to know about the cause of death. She wants to know about these sorts of things. It's not immediately clear why that's so important and why she later in the episode says, we were going to dig him up anyway. But she feels like something's being swept under the rug here. And she's immediately on the ground investigating. She notices, for example, wheel, wheelchair tracks under the tree. So she comes into this place where these masked vigilante cops are just acting like horrible people. If there were any other group other than white supremacists that they were rounding up with these dogs and these forced DNA swabs, we would feel horrible about the scene that we saw. It feels fine in some ways because it's white supremacists, but it's we still, I mean, it's horrible. still chilling. It's chilling. Yes. It's still chilling yes. to see, even with yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and those in the ACLU and, and those people uh, who believe in human rights, uh, no matter what, uh, would say it doesn't matter how odious their views are. Uh, they have the rights to civil rights. It doesn't seem like Lori feels that way because Lori asks one of the guys that uh, Pirate Jenny and Red Scare are bringing in, like, have they violated your civil rights? And he says, yes. She's like, yeah, I don't care, actually. Uh, and I think that's uh, it just shows who she really is. She doesn't care about what's going on. Angela doesn't really seem to be participating in this. But Lori seems to have no problem with it. Yeah, Antonio, didn't you know Angela's not a cop anymore? <laughs> I uh, I had heard that, and yet and yet here we are. Yeah, it is a dangerous it, line of work. It's, it's a dangerous great line of work. Great to see Regina King and Gene Smart in these roles opposite each other, where you've got these incredible powerhouse actors from so many great stories across television and film, you know, colliding together. One of whom is already iconic from the graphic novel is the character she's playing. One of whom is becoming iconic here as Sister Knight, and clearly, I think. I think that in in the in the hopefully in the balance of things, these are people who are going to have aligned interests. But <laughs> at least right now, it's fairly contentious between these two, and it just creates so many uh, delicious moments of, of of calamity. Like when when Lori finally confronts Angela a after everything that goes down at the funeral with the uh, with the explosion and the the suicide bomber is taken out from from the Seventh Cavalry, and she goes and she ha like how about that coffee now and she. He confronts her and basically says, you don't strike me as the fainting type, suggesting that Angela took something from Judd's closet. And when she goes through all the reasons why, and Angela just responds by like feigning fainting. It was so, so, so good. I'm so happy we've got Lori Blake on the show because I think that with Judd being gone, she presents sort of like this different weight that needed to be there. A very different kind of authority figure that is now walking around, pounding the pavement here in Tulsa. One who's familiar to us if you're if you're a Watchmen fan from the get-go. But I think even if you're not, this episode that's an introductory episode into her really just draws you into her story in such a vivid way. 
Definitely. And it is just, it, it's great because there is some loyalty, uh, obviously, in the department to Sister Knight because it is LG who is so difficult about it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to admit uh, that she is Sister Knight. He, you know, when Laurie asks, he hesitates and says, yes, he's like real ashamed about admitting that she is because I think he's just been grilled, right, by Laurie and he knows what's coming. So when you do see Laurie and Angela really facing off in this episode, it is so great uh it is it is Lori is just so brusque like she introduces herself and she says oh and you must be cow like she's just right there and ready to talk to them and just in everybody's faces and of course she's keeping her weapon and of course she's the one causing problems and of course it is angela who springs into action to save everybody but at the end it just seems like these two could easily be oppositional forces, and yet it could also be that these two could work together. And I'm excited by that possibility as much as I am excited seeing uh, Regina King pouring coffee down the hole and feigning <laughs> yeah. being scared. You know, yeah. like it's just so great. Uh, but there's also the opportunity for these two to work together and really kick ass. And I'm loving that. It does seem like something bigger is afoot with whatever is going on with Senator Keene. It is he who is targeted by the 7th Cavalry at this funeral. Uh, it is he who claims, uh, oh, after all, you know, it was it was the it was the heroes that saved me that we should focus on. It's him that is right in the center of this and ready to talk to the media. And I just am given to wonder, considering the entire graphic novel universe yeah. of Watchmen is so founded on false flags and so founded on people staging events to get their own goals out of them. Is Senator Keene somehow involved in what's going on? Did right. he know the 7th Cavalry were coming? He just seems like he, he's a little too comfortable with being ready uh, to respond to all of this. The watch Manchurian candidate. <laughs> That's perfect. I love it. Maybe you should pass the time by playing a little solitaire. Yeah. Uh, it is. Uh, yeah. There's something going on here for sure. And I. I, I just. It, it, there. I don't know if Lori will recognize it, or Angela will recognize it, or they will recognize it together. Uh, Lori seems to be interested, or at least she's okay with carrying water for Senator Keene. I'm not sure we've seen that out of Angela. Angela tells Senator Keene, "I'm not a cop anymore." So I. I at least on that level, she doesn't trust him. I don't know uh, what that says about. If there is something to investigate here, if they're both going to be willing to admit it, uh, if they're both going to be willing to tell truth to power, if only Regina King is, if only Lori is, but I'm fascinated to see where it goes. My question for you is, so poor Judd is dead, but also now poor Judd is exploded into, yeah. <laughs> into, into unrecognizable mush. Uh, yeah, the last as, roundup is about to happen. Yes, yes, uh, as the, the 7K terrorist comes out with the bomb vest and everything, and he, he says if... Uh, it's 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 wired to my heartbeat, and if I die, this bomb goes off. Shout out to uh to 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 Lost season four finale, very similar thing going on there. Uh, and he gets shot, and he wasn't bluffing. The bomb is gonna go off, and they have to act fast. And Angela puts him into the into the grave, and then plops poor Judd's coffin on top of it. There was so much made Antonio about the fact that Judd's body was gonna be exhumed the next day. Lori wanted to know why there wasn't a toxicology on the body we keep hearing we heard it in episode two we heard it again here there is no doubt about it. this man was hanged to death and that is how he died all signs point to that but we've also heard now that things are moving very quickly that judd's funeral happened very 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 fast what kind of chicanery are you sensing here because certainly some form of shenanigans are afoot here and i don't mean the place of the mozzarella sticks and the goofy shit on the walls <laughs> you're talking about shenanigans 
shenanigans, right? Yeah, it was very convenient that Judd's body was exploded like that. Very, very, very convenient. I'm not saying it was convenient to the point that Angela did that on purpose. Right, right. But I mean, like, convenient that if the body is gone, then, yep. like, something that could have been revealed by a toxicology report the next day probably could have turned this nine-episode first season into, like, a five-episode first season. Right. Like, we probably <laughs> could have yada yada to whatever the final reveals will be. Right, because looking back, what we remember is that Judd hit the stop sticks with his car or the car that he wasn't he wasn't driving, he was a passenger in it. He got out of the car with the stop sticks and then he was flashed with some light and that's the last thing we really remember. And then he's hung in a tree and there's a man in a wheelchair next to him there. So how does that all happen? What blanks are we filling in? We don't know yet. Was he drugged? Uh, does him being drugged play a role into the fact that he was hanged? It is not clear in any way. We still also, Josh, in the first episode, talked about the fact that it did seem like it would probably have been an inside job because he they were waiting for him when he left to go greet the police officer who awoke in the hospital, which, by the way, we don't even know if that guy ever did wake up or not. Uh, it's seemingly that's the case. There was a page. He talked to somebody, but he left at that time, and that's when the stop sticks went off. So where does the chicanery start? Who does it involve? Does it involve Judd being drugged in some way? That is certainly what is afoot here. Uh, and the, the levels to which it goes, I think, will have to be sussed out by uh, Sister Knight and and certainly by Lori. Uh, I, I do wonder if, uh, to some extent, if LG was in on it. LG was the one asking Angela, uh, was he drinking? Right. Did he use any other substances? So he was asking those same sorts of questions along those same lines to Angela in episode two. So at least it seems like it was on his radar as something to ask about. So was he involved? I don't know. Some Somebody was involved, though. It certainly seems from this episode that we're not just assuming it was straight up 7th Cavalry. What else from this episode stood out to you before we start wrapping up? Just some quick hits, really, generally speaking. Uh, the Russians are building an intrinsic field generator. Right. That's, a, that's something that was mentioned at the press conference with Senator Keene. Uh, that sets off some Dr. Manhattan vibes for sure. Yes, that is that is how Dr. Manhattan was created. John Osterman getting trapped inside the intrinsic field generator, which was also name-dropped during The Watchmaker's Son, the play from last week. Is a Russian Dr. Manhattan going to show up by by the end of this first season? Well, I listen, Russia being involved with our politicians or being involved in our affairs of state is certainly something that is topical. timely it's and topical. topical. And it's uh, got roots in Watchmen in terms of the Russian yes. and American tensions at the at the core of the original Watchmen. And is that something I, I know that, you know, in in speaking about how the comic book was so timely for its its uh, its era, that that was something that one that Damon Lindelof wanted to capture here in the writing of a new modern retelling of some of the same thematic ideas that are at play in Watchmen and that white supremacy is the big existential threat in America of 2019. And not to say that it's not, it absolutely is. But the Russian thing didn't go away. And that's not something that has been talked about as like an upfront thematic in the HBO adaptation. Right. We haven't been to a Burgers and Borscht. Right, not yet. And and so now to have that uh, brought up as just a throwaway here, I caught that as well. That was very interesting to me. Please, please, God, let Red Scare find himself caught in an intrinsic field generator uh, <laughs> so, that the Red, so that Red Scare could become the Russian Dr. Manhattan by the end of uh, you know, Professor Moscow. Some uh, lower Leningrad. Yes, yes, exactly. And wait for that tracksuit to pop off, baby. Uh, yeah, no, that is uh, really, I still think, he, I still think he's an oak 
Loki. Like, I really don't yeah. think he is uh, Russian. No, I, I think, think he's an Oki. That's a great idea. Accent. I love it. Um, Washington Monument has a ring around the top. It's one too. of those weird details. John Grisham is going to retire from the Supreme Court. Uh, that's probably <laughs> good. The title of the episode, she was killed by space junk. No one in this episode that we know of was killed by space junk. What do you think the, the tie-in here? Obviously, we hear about the brick and the joke, and the end of the episode is literally a car falling from the sky, presumably the car that the old man was in, Louis Gossett Jr., at the end of episode two. So Angela's uh, car, right? Angela's car, yeah, but what? But not her Sister Night car, just her her throwaway car, Civvy car. But right. what about she was killed by space junk? What, who was killed? Well, it's a, it's a Devo reference for one, and she was rocking out to Devo at the start of the episode. As you mentioned, it certainly connects to the, to the brick joke as well. And it's literally falling from space, so it's space junk to some degree. Uh, and there's the twinkle in the sky. Uh, you know, is, is it Dr. Manhattan looking out for Lori? Feels like that would probably be a little too cute. I don't know if you're suspecting Dr. Manhattan's direct involvement in uh, the return of the vehicle. But what, it, what, what I would connect Dr. Manhattan to in this case and with a very evocative title like she was killed by space junk if we're talking about Lori Blake getting killed by space junk well she's alive by the end of the episode but the way that Dr. Manhattan sits and lives and exists within time and he is such a central focus in this episode is that things have already happened 30 minutes from now Dr. Manhattan is currently experiencing it, right? Like he has that relationship right. with time where all things are happening at once. Is there any way to like map that on to Laurie Blake's fate, such as like the arrival of this vehicle, this space junk as it were, by the end of this episode is putting Laurie on some kind of path that she's not going to be able to walk away from? Is she killed by this space junk arriving in her life? 30 days from now, uh, you know, a week from now, three days from now, whatever point in the future this first season of Watchmen wraps. It's a good question. Uh, and I, I think that that would be a very intense thing for Damon Lindelof, who, who, who has such uh, high esteem for the Watchmen graphic novel, for him to kill off a prime character from the Watchmen graphic novel to me feels like that's probably a line that he's not going to cross, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. And honestly, it's a it's a question of what's the right fate. Uh, she's clearly caught up in a lot of what's going on. I don't think she wants to die. She's also very rash, though. She shoots people without real question. And she has to apologize, of course, for shooting the seventh K guy who the bomb was really wired to his heart. Uh, but she doesn't seem to be behaving in the most responsible of ways. I mean, she goes out and immediately sleeps with Agent Petey, uh, who theoretically, I guess, is her. I mean, it's her colleague, but is he her inferior in terms of like, is she his superior in the department? Like those sorts of questions. It's like she does not seem to be behaving the most, uh, you know, the most in order of, of uh, by the book, by the book, protecting herself, looking out for herself. She seems to be a little bit dangerous. Of course, we have to keep in mind she was a masked vigilante, so she probably has that streak in her. It does seem to still be present here. Would I call it a death wish? No, but it's not something I would, if she did die, I wouldn't say she didn't have coming. That's what, I, that's what I'm getting at is it? I can at least see it approaching her or I can see her behaving in a type of way that would invite it. Whether it would happen, whether Damon Lindelof would do that is a, is a definitely a different question. And so far I would say no, but it, you're, you're right that 
other than her, there there isn't anyone killed by space junk in the immediate moments of this episode. Uh, even within the joke, God is described as a man by Lori here. So the God is not a she. So maybe there was a Mrs. Crookshanks under Mr. Phillips there uh, <laughs> and, and the frozen Mr. Phillips that fell out of the sky. Maybe she was killed by space junk. I don't know. But yeah, that's the, that's the title of the episode. So something else is going on. Speaking of something else going on, Lori channels Stannis Baratheon a little bit uh, because Senator Keene said the chief got hung and she corrects him and says hanged, hanged. Yeah, that which was I great. loved. <laughs> Fewer. Fewer people were there yeah. for sure. Some of the supplemental materials this week were interesting. I want to give a shout out to Samuel Salamone uh, who tweeted at me at SJ Salamone on Twitter. Samuel pointed out that there are two different documents in this week's PDpedia. One, there are three different documents total, but two have a connection. One is the uh, is sort of a four-page obituary of Judd. And in that obituary, it talks about his wife and her birth name, Jane Leslie Crawford Nee Alexander. So Alexander was her birth name. In another, uh, which is a legal document, which I got to say, uh, just from a recreational standpoint, I didn't love reading, even <laughs> though it was uh, important stuff. And I, I recommend yeah. anybody read that because it's about uh, the Tulsa massacre and the legal grounds for uh, reviewing the case with a full panel of judges so that everybody's opinion can be can be sought on these matters, whether or not people actually have legal standing to bring action uh, all these years later on that incident. Samuel pointed out, though, that there was a dissent, that there was another case uh, that someone was suing the state of Oklahoma, perhaps to prevent this, uh, and that person's name was Alexander. So it seems like maybe Mrs. Crawford's family may have been involved in that reparations case somehow. I don't know if we're going to tie those things together, but I thought that was a good catch by Samuel. That's the sort of stuff that is in the supplemental material. It also says in Mr. In Judd's obituary that he was one of three survivors of the White Knight. We know two for sure. Is Cal the third? Yeah, that could be. That would make sense. I mean, he certainly survived it. And are they right. only counting police officers? It's a good question. Uh, if, if that's the case, then you would count Judd's wife as well, right? It seems like she was probably home during the incident. Yeah, that's a good point. So I don't know. Who there may the third be a police officer who is yet to be identified on the show. They also mentioned during the FBI meeting in this episode that most people resigned, right? Uh, right. Those who, those who didn't die. So it's possible that if there was another police officer who survived the White Knight, maybe they're just not part of the story anymore. But that's it's a it's a very specific number, uh, and it does make you think: who is the other one, Antonio? Oh no, that's a good question. You almost triggered me. In that same FBI meeting, we see Judd and Angela's files on the screen. In Judd's, I noticed that he is. Listed as 190 pounds. Do you think I could lift 200 pounds? It seems to make sense. Where's Both the extra an- 10 pounds? Where, uh, changed listen, since the White Knight. <laughs> he'd been laying it on. Uh, he'd been uh, banging those rails of coke, so maybe he should have been skinnier. Who knows? But everyone, both Judd and Angela's social security numbers are listed there, and they have 10 numbers, not nine. Now, I don't know if that's a production thing to not list someone's real social security number, uh, or if something in the world of Watchmen is so different that they have 10 numbers. We also saw, I think, the best image yet of the full new flag of the United States of America. I did not count the total number of stars on it. We know it's a we know it's probably 51 at least. at least. I don't think any states are gone, although it's possible that some are. But it, it looked like it was more than 50 to me, and we know Vietnam is a state. So whether or not it's 50, 55, uh, who knows? But we got a really great look at that flag. Also in Angela's file, it says, owner of milk and Hanoi bakery, <laughs> parentheses, still yet to open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the final scene of the season, obviously. Bakery opening up. Bakery's yeah. opening up, the grand opening, Sister Knight retired. Angela is finally ready to to get those mooncakes to the people of Tulsa. 
I also really like the character note when Lori is using Looking Glass's face to pick her teeth. Uh, she says, well, if you make your face shiny, people are going to use it. And she calls him by his name, Wade. Uh, everybody else seems to call him LG or Looking Glass or Glass. Uh, she calls him Wade. So she is really just proceeding to undermine his whole aura, uh, his whole thing that he is as Looking Glass. She does a great job of undermining all of that in, in that scene. And those little notes about her looking at herself or calling him by his name, making him pure that mask up just about higher than we've seen it i think really really good so i, I really appreciated those little details of Lori's behavior uh, what did you think about the car falling out of the sky at the end we talked about how it's probably angela's car from the previous episode why then is there any reason why it would have fallen out then versus any other time well i think that that is when you start to get suspicious of who from the original storyline may be involved here like who or or at least who like really deeply connected to the original storyline may be involved here uh the arrival of of lori in tulsa and then this car dropping in her lap and her looking up at the winking mars is there some connection to dr manhattan or at least somebody who is deeply aware of lori's connection to dr manhattan and wants to draw her in deeper to whatever it is that's going on maybe because lori knows more about ozymandias and what ozymandias did to the world does that make her a severe person of interest i think either way uh it's not I, I I gotta imagine that it's going to make that relationship that's already so fascinating between Lori and Angela all the more fascinating uh, when Lori explains to Angela how her car has been returned to her. Definitely, <laughs> and it is it is like the synergy of her finishing the story about the brick falling on God is there. Like I said, I also really like the idea that the girl would have to get one over on God that she was standing behind all the heroes and that God was focusing on all these big bad heroes at the pearly gates and there was this girl standing behind him the whole time if you assume that lori is the girl in the story and that she's the one who threw the brick uh, she's the one who got one over on god and god himself went to hell in her version of this tale so it's just the connection there uh, to that then when she is right out of that scene a car almost falls on her and doesn't and she probably feels immortal for a moment like i that could have fallen on me and died it didn't i feel very alive maybe i feel protected by dr man Manhattan. Uh, either way, like she feels a certain type of way when it falls. And you're right, something made it fall. So what is it? Who knows? What about Josh? Should we should we wrap this up by talking about one great shout out as she ends her joke uh, to the graphic novel? Roll on snare drum, curtains, good joke. I love it. It's great. I mean, this is just it's such a smartly written show for a lot of reasons. But, you know, there, there's a contingent of people out there who are who are uh, who love the Watchmen graphic novel who are not thrilled about this show or who are not giving this show a chance. And indeed, Damon Lindelof, even encouraging people who are extreme Alan Moore loyalists to not watch the show because Alan Moore does not want you to do it. So if that's where you're coming from, he really wants you to stand by the courage of your convictions, as you know, Antonio, from the the many years that you and I have known each other, I lack courage and convictions. So I am deeply watching this show. But for those of us who are engaging with it, it is just that level of fidelity to the source material that is uh, one of the one of the many rich layers that's making this so much fun to chew on every week. 
Definitely. I mean, you in your interview with Damon Lindelof and the discussions that have been had about this season, talk, the, the discussion is that they were reading the graphic novel chapter by chapter uh, as a writer's room. You know, they were loving it. So the book club is relevant. It's there. Uh, there are these great little touches. Uh, and so I definitely appreciate it. We didn't have as much of the story within the story with American Hero Story this week. We saw a reference to it on top of the cab that Lori takes in D.C. Uh, but we also did get a deeper uh, one of the supplements mental materials. Uh, Agent Petey, of course, uh, ever the one to write memos, wrote a memo about vigilantes in pop culture and wrote about American Hero Story Minutemen. And he complained, Josh, about his access to screeners. So uh, he... <laughs> I know the complaint, Petey. <laughs> I understand it. Yes, he feels you deeply on some intrinsic field, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we are wrapping here on She Was Killed by Space Junk. Next week, Antonio, episode four of HBO's Watchmen is called If You Don't Like My Story, Write Your Own. (laughs) (laughs) Seems aggressive. Uh, Yeah, it seems on point (laughs) to a certain section of the fandom. For sure. So we will get into that next week. Uh, Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing to Series Regular. However you listen to your podcasts on your app, you can find us. Leave your ratings and reviews. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Any feedback you want to send our way, Series Regular at THR.com. I'm on Twitter at Round Howard. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. We will be back next week with another episode of the Watchmen podcast here on Series Regular. If you haven't gotten your fill of all things Watchmen, Check out THR.com slash Watchmen for much more. Antonio, anything else? No, that's it, man. I had a great time talking this week, and I can't wait to find out what Adrian Veidt gets into next week. <laughs> I know. Oh Might be God. another planet altogether. Like, this uh, guy is trying to go into outer space. He's burning people. He's freezing people. Uh, what other elements can he? He's going to blow somebody away in the wind. Oh, fantastic. All right, well, we'll find out soon. Until next time, roll on snare drum, curtains, good joke.